listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War The Philippines, the USA, War, Colonialism, and the Martial Arts Part 6 Last time, we finished up the action of the Cuban theater of the Spanish-American War, with the removal of Spanish troops from the island. But before I continue the story, I want to focus for a moment on how our perception of history can be purposely distorted by people and institutions with agendas. You see, in the years after the war, a controversy would arise regarding the performance of black American troops in Cuba, and, most specifically, Theodore Roosevelt's evolving assessment of the martial abilities of the Buffalo Soldiers. Among his statements right after the war was one that went, quote, The colored troops did as well as any soldiers could possibly do. Unquote. He also said, quote, I wish no better man beside me in battle than these colored troops showed themselves to be. Unquote. As time went by, and Mr. Roosevelt began using the perception that the American public had of his combat experience as political fodder, he began to downplay the role of the regular soldiers, and especially the African American ones while playing up his own role in the Cuban theater of the conflict. After a few years passed, when speaking on the same subject, he said, quote, The Buffalo soldiers performed their duties well, but only because they were peculiarly dependent on their white officers. Unquote. His revisionist view of the history of his own experience went even further when he later was quoted as saying, Negro troops were shirkers in their duties and would only go so far as they were led by white officers." Unquote. He even bragged about having drawn his pistol to stop black troops from fleeing to the rear during the Battle of Las Guasimas. Fortunately for history, this incident was well documented. You see, during the battle, an officer ordered two Buffalo soldiers from his unit to hurry to the rear and bring some much-needed ammunition forward. Very soldierly task to be given. They were dutifully doing just that when Mr. Roosevelt decided that they were running away. A white officer saw Roosevelt with his drawn pistol pointed threateningly at the Buffalo soldiers and quickly informed him of his mistake. Even after being corrected, though, again in the battle and later in the future, Mr. Roosevelt continued to claim that he had prevented cowardly flight by Negro soldiers in his political statements. It was utter horseshit, and he knew it. But the reputation of the black soldiers who had saved his life more than once in Cuba was not as important to him as were his political ambitions. Now keep in mind the political and historical timing here. This was during the height of the Jim Crow years of political and cultural restrictions on African Americans, 
from a coldly political perspective, there was little downside to boosting your own reputation at the expense of black folks. Hell, they weren't even able to vote in most of the South. Ironically, even the enemy Spaniards provide testimony in this case. At San Juan Heights, the Spaniards, who also subscribed to the racist philosophies of the day, thinking that the American Buffalo soldiers would wilt under fire, had concentrated much of that fire at the black soldiers. Many units of the 24th Infantry had all of their white officers killed. None of the remaining Buffalo soldiers took a backwards step. This so impressed the commanding general of the Spanish forces that after the battle he addressed the black American troops, saying, If you will be as brave in the future for your country as you have proven yourselves today, it will not be very long before you will have generals in the armies of the United States. So how come so many of us were taught that Teddy Roosevelt charged up San Juan Hill and nearly single-handedly defeated the Spaniards in Cuba? Well, as you have probably figured out, the culprit here would be Mr. Roosevelt himself. Remember that he had a coterie of reporters following him throughout the war. His was just the type of personality that made for excellent news copy. If Teddy Roosevelt wasn't the center of the story, he would make himself such with braggadocio and bloviation. He later wrote a memoir of his time with the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry entitled Rough Riders. It was full of exaggeration and outright lies. But Mr. Roosevelt was the darling of the American press. And as a direct result of this, he quickly came to be considered a war hero. And the American public quickly became uninterested in any narratives that contradicted his story. It was published in 1904, right in time to boost his image as he ran for re-election as president. Perhaps the final irony of this part of the story occurred in the year 2001, when Theodore Roosevelt was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions in Cuba. In any case, there was still one other major theater of operations left in the war, and that was the Philippines on the other side of the planet. And after finishing a brief campaign on Puerto Rico, American military planners turned their thoughts to the distant archipelago. If you will recall, the first action of the war had been in the Philippines, when the United States Asiatic Fleet had sunk the Spanish fleet in Manila. But the Americans were at first unable to build on this victory because they had no ground troops within thousands of miles. If you'll also recall, the commander of the American fleet soon contacted the leaders of the recent Filipino rebellion against Spain, encouraging them to return from their exile in Hong Kong and begin fighting the Spaniards. The rebel leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, and Commodore Dewey met on his flagship in Manila Harbor. They each came away from the meeting with apparently quite different understandings of what had been agreed to. Aguinaldo would repeatedly claim that he had been promised assistance by the Americans in his rebellion. And after that, Philippine independence. Commodore Dewey would later insist that he had given no such assurances. The source of this confusion has been the subject of intense debate among scholars of this period. The likely story seems to be that American State Department officials in Hong Kong and Singapore 
were the guilty parties when it came to giving Aguinaldo the impression that the USA had no colonial aspirations for the Philippine Islands. In any case, Aguinaldo did indeed return home and found that the Philippine Revolutionary Army had already risen up and begun fighting the Spanish. Within a month, they regained control of nearly all of the Philippine islands, with the exception of the capital city of Manila, where they had besieged the remaining Spanish forces. On June 12, 1898, the Filipino rebels officially declared independence from Spain. They were now the first Philippine Republic. They did this in a document that, ironically, in light of what was to come, drew elements from the American Declaration of Independence. Both the Americans and the Spanish ignored this document. A few weeks after this, the first American occupation troops landed in the Philippine Islands. Their orders were to, quote, complete the reduction of Spanish power in the archipelago and to provide order and security to the islands while in possession of the United States, unquote. When the Americans realized that the only Spanish troops left in the islands were in Manila, they made their way there quickly and negotiated with the Filipinos to be allowed to pass through their lines and attack the Spanish. The Philippine rebels, determined, capable, but sadly under-equipped, agreed, turning over 15,000 Spanish prisoners of war to the Americans. As it turns out, the Spanish didn't want to fight the Americans. They had been afraid to surrender to the Filipinos for fear that their former colonial subjects would exact retribution for centuries of Spanish repression. In a dispatch filled with racial slurs against the Filipinos, the Spanish commander assured the Americans that if they just made a good show of things, you know, lob a few artillery shells in, that this would give them a chance to honorably surrender, quote, under fire, unquote. The night before the battle, American Brigadier General Thomas Anderson sent a cable to Aguinaldo saying, Do not let your troops enter Manila without the permission of the American commander. Evidence was growing that the Americans were not conducting their affairs like allies, but rather like a slightly different flavor of colonial masters. In any case, the plan for the sham battle of Manila moved forward. But the American and Spanish leaders who set up this elaborate hoax failed to fill in the soldiers on the ground on the details. When the obligatory artillery shells were fired into Manila, a general firing started all up and down the line and increased until 49 Spaniards and 6 Americans had been killed. Eventually, the fighting was brought under control so that the surrender could go according to plan, ending the fake battle that had become a real one. The Filipinos had no seat at the table when the surrender ceremonies took place. As you would imagine, they were pissed off. The way they saw it, and understandably so, this was their country. They had declared their independence. Yet they were being given no say in events that were shaping their future. Back in America, there was spirited debate over whether the U.S. should keep the territories of the Spanish Empire, over which its military was now in control. Back in the political wrangling that occurred in the days just before the war, 
an amendment was included in the joint resolution for war on Spain. It was called the Teller Amendment. And its essence was to declare that after the war, Cuba would be independent. Now this was done to mollify the political forces that were nervous about war and were concerned that America was trying to become an imperial power. Several years later, after the Americans were in possession of Cuba, a second amendment was passed, called the Platt Amendment. This amazing piece of legislative trickery essentially reversed the Teller Amendment. While on paper, Cuba would be an independent country, the fine print of the document assured that the United States would retain political and economic dominance over the island. That's where we got our military base at Guantanamo. But when it came to the Philippines, there was no such amendment. President McKinley, to his credit, actually agonized over the decision of what to do with the Philippines. But his final decision was shaped by the racism of the day. In an address to a group of Methodist missionaries, he said, quote, I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight, and I'm not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night late it came to me this way, that there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all, and to educate the Filipinos, and uplift them, and civilize, and Christianize them. Unquote. The vast majority of Filipinos were already Christian, and had been for centuries longer than the United States had even been in existence. But they were Catholic. To the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants of the U.S. in 1898, Catholics didn't really count as legitimate Christians. Now that the fighting was over, negotiations began. They took about five months, but eventually the United States and Spain signed the Treaty of Paris, which ended the war, gave Cuba its independence, awarded direct possession of Puerto Rico and Guam to the United States, and sold the Philippines, and one would assume all the Filipinos, to the United States for $20 million. What do you think the reaction of Emilio Aguinaldo, the first Philippine Republic, and the Philippine people was to this turn of events? Well, I think you can guess. But I'll go into detail about it next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>